Specialty Story, session number 129. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every episode, and I'm excited to bring you another great conversation with a physician today. Our physician today is a psychiatrist, someone who's been out of training now for 10 years and is up at UC Davis. And she does some amazing things with gun control, with just tons of uh, awesome outreach to the community. We have a great conversation with Dr. Amy Barnhorst, and we start the conversation with how Dr. Barnhorst first became interested in psychiatry. I think it was on my third year psychiatry clerkship. You know, when I went to medical school, I was like, I'm not sure what I want to do, but definitely not psychiatry. That was the one thing. <laughs> I'd never met a psychiatrist. I didn't understand what they did. It didn't really seem like medicine to me. But when I did my clerkship, I realized what psychiatry actually was and that it was, in fact, very medical and that it was really fascinating and interesting and that there was a huge need for it and that so many of the other problems that people struggled with were actually you know, behavioral or psychiatric in nature. And I really liked the people on my service. I mean, I think that was part of it. I had these two interns that I worked with that I just really connected with and really liked. And they were kind of um, funny, interesting, well-rounded people with kind of like a little bit of a dark sense of humor. And I really appreciated that. And I was like, oh, these are my people. (laughs) Yeah. Were there any other specialties in the running before psychiatry took over? Yeah. I mean, I think I was, you know, anybody who knew me would have said, probably myself included, that I was on the track to being an ER doc. Mm. Um, you know, I was like a rock climber. I did a lot of wilderness first aid. I used to teach mountaineering courses in Colorado and, um, I was really into, I was a surfer. I did a lot of outdoor stuff and that's just kind of the the lifestyle corollary for ER docs. But Mm -hmm. I think it also speaks to this sort of like ADHD jumping around, like really distractible, can do a lot of things at once, but like, don't like to focus on something for a long period of time. Um, I really like, I like, I, I operate best in an emergency, whether it's like, if I have a paper due or whatever, it just, I do best if it's like very last minute. Yeah. Um, I like a little bit of adrenaline to just kind of keep me interested. And so I think that ER lifestyle and practice was a really good fit for me. I also thought a lot about going into family practice because I was really interested in public health and preventative care. Mm-hmm. And, um, and actually before I went to medical school, when I really knew absolutely nothing, I thought that I wanted to be a epidemiologist and a infectious disease doctor. And I wanted to, I wanted to study hemorrhagic fevers. Interesting. So kind of all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. I, so. And and <laughs> I don't know, I, I didn't look at your, your bio to see when you were in school or anything. So I don't know your age, but it, I'm guessing it was right around the time like the, the movie Contagion came out. That was very, uh, that was a while ago, uh, which is obviously well, back in the news again. Yeah. And it was, it was really this book called, um, called The Coming Plague mm. that was, I read in the late nineties when I was living in Boulder doing my prereqs and it goes chapter by chapter with a bunch of different infectious diseases like Ebola and HIV. And it talks about what really got me was how, um, how it wasn't really the way the virus was built or the way that, you know, RNA replicated that made the thing so lethal. What made 
epidemic so lethal was the social and political and economic structure of the communities that they affected. And that was what like was so fascinating to me. And it's funny because I didn't do a lot of that in my psychiatry practice, but I have since gotten into doing a lot of work with gun violence prevention. Yeah. And it is the same thing. It is, it is not necessary. I mean, bullets are very lethal. Yes. But our gun violence problem here is not just about the lethality of the weapons. It's about the social and the political and the economic drivers the same way, you know, the Ebola epidemics are about those same things. Yeah. Interesting. What are the biggest misconceptions or myths around psychiatry? I mean, I think the ones that I had going in are, are pretty common, like that it's, you know, psychiatrists are just mostly bearded old men who wear tweed coats with elbow <laughs> patches and they sit in a chair while their patients talk. And every, you know, 10 or 15 minutes, they say, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. tell me more, tell me more about that. <laughs> tell me more. Um, and like, why did I need to go to medical school to do that? But I, I think what, what people don't realize, or what I at least didn't realize, is the incredible variety of practice settings that are available to us. So, you know, you can work in the emergency department, seeing people in acute crises, putting people on hold, dealing with a lot of methamphetamine and PCP intoxication. You can see people in a psychotherapy clinic where actually you do need some training to know when to say, mm-hmm, tell me more about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you can work in an inpatient psychiatric hospital, treating people with serious chronic mental illness. You can work in a jail. You can work in an outpatient medical medication management clinic. I mean, there's, it's like every, every other specialty has its own, you know, is it hospital based? Is it shift work? Is it clinic schedule? Psychiatry has all of the possibilities in one, in one specialty. Yeah. What? As you, as you were going through this process, trying to to figure it out and and becoming a psychiatrist, when you were kind of going down that path, did you get any pushback from people around you saying, "Well, like, why are you going to go into psychiatry?" Because I hear that a lot from students. Like, well, it's kind of the same misconceptions you had, like psychiatry is not medicine, but getting that pushback from outside yourself. No, I don't think I did because, you know, none of my family is in medicine and none of my friends were in medicine. And so nobody knew enough to say one way or the other. I did have (laughs) one of my best friends in the world who's known me forever and knows that, um, you know, I think she and I both struggle with perfectionist tendencies and kind of could be really high achieving if we wanted to. We have that a lot of, you know, potential and privilege to do what it is we want to do. And when I told her that I was going into psychiatry, she did say to me, she said, good job not becoming a surgeon. (laughs) And I really felt that. I was like, thank you for appreciating that. Because there is that poll, right? Like when you tell people you're a surgeon, they're like, wow. And when you tell people you're a psychiatrist, they're like, ugh. (laughs) Yeah. Total opposite ends. It's interesting. Yeah. And and like you kind of know that going into it. Um, But I would say that mostly I talked to other psychiatrists at, here at Davis and, you know, residents and attendings and everyone was like, yeah, we all, we all go through this. You know, we all have to, there's a little bit of a loss of hanging up that the prestige of being a doctor and other specialties and the respect, but what you make up for it is like that you, you know, we generally are pretty happy specialty. We really enjoy our work. The work we do, I feel like is so necessary and so meaningful, not just to our patients, but to other specialties too. I mean, they, they really heavily rely on us um, for consultations and referrals. Mm. And 
in preventative care, psychiatric interventions and behavioral interventions are so important. So, you know, once you can kind of get over the slight ego hit, it's really worth it. And that's what I heard from everybody who was practicing. Yeah. Interesting. What traits do you think lead to someone being a great psychiatrist? You know, I think it really varies because there's so many sub specialties and like different areas of practice within psychiatry that for me, you know, I have all the, I have a lot of personality traits of an ER doc where I like a little bit of adrenaline. I like chaos. I like showing up at work and having no idea what's coming. Um, I, I don't mind being really busy, but I also, you know, like my work to be confined to shifts when possible. And so I I work really well in a crisis unit or in, or doing psychiatric consults in an ER. And that's what I do a lot of my work as. Um, other psychiatrists are very meticulous. They're very, um, detail oriented. They're, they like to make, you know, make personal connections, move really slowly, get to know their patients and their families. And those kinds of people do really well in outpatient clinics where they have a lot more time with folks and, um, things aren't quite as acute. So I think that like, whatever your personality traits are that lead you to a certain style of practice, there's a match for you in psychiatry. But one of the main things is you have to be a little bit, you have to be introspective enough to know what it is that you're bringing to the table versus what it is that actually is from your patient. Because so much about psychiatry is from the interaction with the other person. And if you don't know that the tension in the room is actually from you or that the reason that they're acting removed and quiet is because you've pushed them away or rebuked them in some manner. If you're not willing to acknowledge what it is you bring to the table, it's hard to be a good psychiatrist in any of those settings. And that's why in psychiatry, we actually really encourage residents while they're in training to do their own personal therapy Mm. because that way they have a better understanding of like, what are their own personality traits what are their own, you know, assets and flaws that they bring to every relationship they're in, whether it's a professional one or a personal one? And what sorts of reactions do they elicit from people? How do they make people feel? How do people see them in the world? And having that kind of perspective on yourself is, I think, really crucial. And without it, people can get into a lot of trouble. It seems like it would be very hard. One of the myths or misconceptions of psychiatry that you didn't mention, but we hear it all the time is the whole, it takes one to know one kind of thing. But I, I think <laughs> everyone in this world is struggling with something. And, yeah. and as you were talking about, right, what is, what is the physician, what is the psychiatrist bringing to that interaction? And how, how is a resident, especially someone early on in their training, early on in these interactions? So how do they get good at putting aside their own biases and their own reactions from dealing with the issues with their mom? And they're sitting in front of a patient who's just reminding them mm-hmm. of their mom this whole time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a, that's an, a perfect example of it. It's like, how do you separate yourself out from that? You know, how do you hear about somebody else's, you know, breakup and respond in their best interest when you're going through a similar situation? How do you take yourself out of the equation or at least acknowledge what your contribution to that equation is? Um, and it's hard and it takes a certain kind of person. And I'm, I'll be honest, not every psychiatrist can do it. Yeah. So, you know, I would say that there, I, I think that psychiatrists are kind of a, um, a bimodal distribution in terms of like maybe like perspective and psychological well-being like the the bulk of psychiatrists that i know are really awesome smart 
mature people who a lot of us have had careers before we went into medicine. We really saw the importance of this kind of work. We felt like we had the coping skills and the personal perspective to be able to do this kind of work. But then there's like a little bump on the other end that is like the people who are here because either they're trying to rectify their own bad experiences and their mental health care, or they want to know what it is that's made them suffer from psychological problems all their life. And that's why they focused on this. So there's this kind of like this other subset of psychiatrists that, you know, aren't, aren't quite as uh, well adjusted. Yeah. That's, that's every specialty. That's <laughs> just psychiatry, yeah, but it seems to be more true. important potentially for psychiatry. But I think you can get away with it more when you're like yes. an anesthesiologist and your patients are asleep, <laughs> you know, but yeah, maybe your colleagues would notice. <laughs> uh, what does a typical day or a typical week look like for you? Oh God, there's no such thing for me, but I think for a lot of psychiatrists there is, I have sort of a weird um, setup right now. Um, I'll tell you what this week looks like this morning. I was in the County crisis unit, um, covering patients there working with two residents and a medical student who is uh, fourth year this afternoon. I'm doing this podcast and working on, uh, firearm violence prevention curriculum that I'm helping develop for the, uh, UC firearm violence center that was funded by the state of California out here tomorrow. Um, and the next day, I'm actually covering for our consultation liaison service at the UC Davis Hospital, which is a really big hospital. And we're, I think, the second busiest consult service there. Wow. So I think in a lot of places, the psychiatric consult service is like, you know, really small and they get called every once in a while. We are like an integral part of care for a lot of the teams. Plus, the emergency department really relies on us for taking care of patients in the ED because they'll have up to you know, 20 to 30 patients on a psychiatric hold in any given day. So tomorrow I'll be consulting on those patients and seeing people, you know, in the ICU on the surgical and medical floors in the hospital. Um, then Thursday, I'm back to my fire on violence prevention curriculum project that I'm helping develop meeting with my team. Um, and then I am doing some things. I'm the vice chair in my department. So I'm covering for my chair while she's gone. So I'm doing some meetings with hospital leadership about a new unit that we've developed. And then in my free time, I have to write a, uh, finish up a one pager for one of our um, Congresswomen here who requested that I submit something about the methamphetamine crisis in the Western states and how it contributes to homelessness and increasing crime rates and uh, increased healthcare and uh, psychiatric bed usage. Mm so that she can think about how to formulate legislation from that. Wow. So that's my week. It's like all over the place. <laughs> lots, lots of stuff <laughs> going on. Yeah. Yeah. Speak, speaking about your ADHD, right? It's just right. all over Did the I place. That? <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. What does call look like for you? Um, for me here, well, it depends. So I cover call for the jail. I cover call for the County inpatient hospital and crisis unit. And I cover call for the UC Davis hospital. All of those, when I cover call, if it's a weekend, involve me going in and seeing patients. But depending on the site, that takes me from like one hour to eight hours on a Saturday or Sunday. And then covering the pager overnight. When I cover the pager overnight, I usually don't have to go in unless there's you know been a certain kind of event in a certain kind of setting. So I'd say like one in 10 nights, I'd, I have to go in mostly it's home call and fielding pages about like, Hey, this person has a headache and they need Tylenol. Hey, this person has chest pain. Do we need to send them to the ER? Hey, this person, you know, uh, 
is, is saying their voices have gotten really bad. Do you have any medications you can recommend? Mm. Do you feel like you have enough time for life outside of the hospital? You know, I do um, because I am very adamant about making that kind of time. I have two kids. I had two kids when I was a medical student. So I learned very early on that I needed to cut things out if I was going to survive. Hence the comment about good job, not becoming a surgeon. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, So I am really particular about what projects I take on, what I say yes to, what I give a hundred percent to, and what I give, you know, 75, 80% to and call it good. Yeah. What I say no to, but it is a constant process of weeding and culling and, you know, it's like your lawn. Like if you just, if you don't weed out stuff for a month, you slack off You're it's just going to get overrun with things that you didn't want in there. And so it's a very active, deliberate process of looking at what you've taken on and saying, do I, do I want to be doing this? Does it bring me joy? Do I want to be working with these people? Is this something that is in line with my personal or career goals? And do I feel like this is like contributing meaning into the world? And is there somebody else who could do this instead of me? Yeah. Yeah. I think as a society, we're very bad, bad about the intentionality of what you're describing. Mm-hmm. And we just kind of like, we, we let life happen instead of really figuring out what we want. Yeah. And part of it is too, you know, we're all in medicine because we want to help people and we like to make people feel better. We like to please them. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to say no. And I actually feel like I'm good at it because I'm kind of a jerk. <laughs> um, you know, you have to be, and I feel bad for nice people. It must be really hard. Yeah. Yeah. The people pleasers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good. It's a good, it's a good trait to have. Yeah. What does the path look like to become a psychiatrist? So full disclosure, I went to UC Davis medical school and I did my training here and then I left for like three months and then I came back and joined the faculty. <laughs> so I don't have a lot of perspective on other places, but, um, my, I think it's, I think we're pretty similar to other places. So you complete medical school. I know for me, my fourth year, I had a lot of elective time. And what I really tried to do was do electives and things that would be relevant for me as a practicing psychiatrist, but I may not have as much training as I wanted. So I actually elected to do two months in the emergency room because I knew that I was going to be working some kind of emergency or crisis psychiatry. And I was going to be seeing people with hypertension and chest pain and those kinds of things. Um, I did an extra neurology. I took an EKG reading course because a lot of our medications have cardiac implications. And then intern year is six months medicine, six months psychiatry and neurology. So depending on how your program breaks it up, um, you know, you may be spending between two to four or five months doing inpatient medicine. Mm -hmm. I think we, my program, I did two months of inpatient medicine, maybe two months of outpatient and a couple months of neurology, one of which was inpatient. And I would say in general, the, around here, the, um, the view was that psychiatry residents hated their internal medicine inpatient months. And the internal medicine inpatient people were, you know, they felt about the same about us because we were not there to manage people's electrolytes. We didn't love it. And it just wasn't what we were born to do. Yeah. I actually loved my inpatient medicine months. And sometimes I like fantasize about going back and being an intern on the wards with all my little lists and like running around. I just I felt so... <laughs> productive and empowered. And I got, I got to do all this stuff and there was so much learning and I was like really taking care of patients. Um, 
and then, you know, in your psychiatry months, we did a lot of consult liaison and um, other things in the hospital that were more psychiatrically oriented. Then for us, second year, we are almost entirely working in the county system. So the county crisis unit, the county inpatient hospital, the county jail, um, and some county outpatient clinics. We have a really strong community psychiatry program here because we have this unique relationship with the county where a lot of their mental health facilities, they staff with UC Davis doctors, even though everyone else who works there is in the county. And it's a really great way to just um, to work with an underserved population that has a lot of serious, serious pathology. Um, and third year is an outpatient year where you see patients in the clinic, you do medication management, you um, get a lot of really good psychotherapy training. So you learn how to say, mm-hmm, tell me more about that at just the right time. Um, and then fourth year is a lot of elective time. So actually, if you wanted to be like, for example, a child psychiatrist, that's a two-year fellowship on top of the four years of regular residency training. But you can start those two years. It's like the first one can be your uh, year-long elective of your fourth year. Oh, wow. So you can do what's called fast tracking and get the whole package done in five years. That's kind of cool. Yeah. What other opportunities are there for fellowship? So there's a PSM, Psychosomatic Medicine or Consult Liaison Fellowships, where you learn a lot about just being a consultant in the hospital for other teams, how to manage um, difficult patients in the hospital, how to make decisions about things like capacity to make, to make medical choices, a much more medically focused uh, subspecialty. There's child again, there's forensic, which is really interesting. I've thought about doing a forensic fellowship on and off for a long time. It's the interface between psychiatry and the law. So everything from doing evaluations to determine if people are incompetent to stand trial due to a mental illness, or if they're not guilty by reason of insanity, um, to working in jails, working in prisons. Um, and then also even some civil stuff, like a lot of the firearms work I do involves mental health law. So it would be helpful for me to have more of a forensic background and a lot of the other psychiatrists I work with on firearm violence prevention and legislation have a forensic background. So they have like a better understanding of things like constitutional law than I probably do. Yeah. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into psychiatry? I'm not, I don't, that's a hard one. I'm sure a lot of things, but I'm not even acutely aware of like what my deficits are at this point. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. What do you like the most about being a psychiatrist? I love the variety. I mean, I love that I have this week where I am doing, you know, policy work on methamphetamine and curriculum and educational work on firearms and clinical work in a medical hospital and a crisis unit. And I'll be down at the jail next weekend. And I just, I get to be all over the place and I really enjoy that. And I think some people really love having an office that they go to every day and see patients every you know hour on the hour. Um, but I love that if I decided I really wanted to be back in the medical hospital, I could go do consult liaison work. And if I decided that I wanted to just do evaluations and reports, I could do a forensic fellowship. And if I decided that I wanted to be an inpatient doc, I could you know, work in a hospital every day and run an inpatient team. There's just so much variety and there's so much need. I could probably, you know, I, I feel like as a psychiatrist, you can move almost anywhere in the country and get a job. There's nobody, there's no area that's saying like, yeah, we, we just have too many mental health providers right now. That doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What do you like the least? Sometimes I feel like my, because, and this is probably more of a personal problem than one that applies to my whole profession, but my, I'm so scattered in what I do that I know a little bit about a lot of things 
many of which are arguably not even that medical. <laughs> and I've lost information about, you know, how to handle basic medical problems. Like it's been a long time since I managed somebody's diabetes long term or, you know, worked somebody up for chest pain. And I do some of those things in the crisis unit because we don't have medical doctors there. So the psychiatrist provides that kind of care. But I do sometimes wish I had more um, practice with like basic medical skills and primary care. And I was wondering, you know, if there's an emergency on the plane, and I'm the only doctor there. Am I even going to remember <laughs> what to do? Or am I just going to be like asking the person about their mother? And mother I just don't raise my hand in those situations. Yeah, that's probably bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Let's talk about mental health stigma. I think a lot of students coming up, potentially listening to this, have struggled with their own issues. Uh, there are going to be some students who continue the stigma because they haven't been exposed to much mental health. How do we as a society start to help us realize that depression isn't just because the person's not trying hard enough or what, whatever other stigmas are out there with mental health? Yeah, I mean, there's so, it's such a complicated issue because um, yeah, there is a lot of stigma out there. And I also think that the stigma applies differently to, to these two groups that I like to think of, one of which is people with serious mental illness and the other of which is people with psychological issues or lack of psychological wellness. And in terms of the people with serious mental illness, so people with schizophrenia, severe bipolar disorder, um, you know, those folks represent a really small percentage of the population. And I think one of the weird things about it is that a lot of people, a lot of medical students, and this is true of me too, have never seen somebody like that. They've never met a person yeah. or spent time with a person who's in the throes of psychosis. And a surprising number of students come to rotate in you know, some of our really cute environments and really don't believe that mental illness exists. They yeah. don't think it's a thing. And then they meet some of our patients and they're like, <laughs> oh, oh, okay, I, I, I get it now. But they just had no idea. Yep. Because if you have diabetes or lupus or, you know, hypertension, yeah. you have a family, you have a job, you can go to school, you fit in, in the fabric of society. Yeah. And so you're around. So everybody knows somebody who has yeah. a seizure disorder. And there's also a but, test for that. And there's a test for that. And so it's really clear to be like, okay, this, you know, this person is not faking their high blood pressure. Yep. That's, that's what this is. When you have schizophrenia, you kind of start to like fall off the curve. You know, maybe you have trouble in school. You isolate from your friends. Your friends move on. You drop out of school. You're getting isolated from your family. You stop coming to family events. Maybe you get arrested or hospitalized. You lose your job. And you just kind of drift downward and out away from what everybody else is doing until you disappear. And it's not good for those people, but it's also hard for everybody else because we don't see what it's like to be them because they just fade away. Mm. And that's not to say they're gone, but they fade away from our sites. And so we're not thinking about like, oh yeah, gee, I wonder how, you know, Brandon's depression is the way we might wonder, hey, Brandon, how's your seizure disorder? Because we just don't see him. He doesn't come to class. He doesn't call. He doesn't come out with his, with the group. And And so it's easy for people who have never been around it to just sort of discount that it's really a thing and really a problem. And it is, it's a huge thing. And a lot of people suffer from it and don't have support and don't have resources. And then I think the other side of that is that people who aren't aware of what actual serious mental illness looks like, they confuse it with, you know, mental unwellness. 
And that's not to diminish the struggles of people who have things like, you know, social phobia, anxiety, mild depression. And I think it's great that of late, a lot of famous people have come out and talked about their struggles with, you know, Taylor Swift talked about her struggle with eating disorders or, um, uh, what was the woman from Star Wars? Carrie, um, Carrie Fisher, Carrie Fisher talked about her struggle with bipolar disorder, but, but for people who were otherwise really, they appear to be quite high functioning. I think it's helpful for them to say, Hey, look, I may be famous and beautiful and, and rich and all these things that everybody wants to be. But I also have these struggles. I think it normalizes it. I think this is a really new trend of, um, younger people being able to talk about this kind of stuff, being able to seek help because they've had role models in, you know, in the media saying like, I too have this issue, mm-hmm. but in, and it's, so I think it's really great for people, um, who are, who are coming up into adulthood to be more open about their struggles with their emotions, with their difficult times, with, you know, sadness or anxiety. But I also think paradoxically, it draws some tension away from what actual real mental illness is because, um, it's a much more serious thing. And the people who are struggling with, you know, schizoaffective disorder are not, you know, are not the ones out there walking in the red carpet and, you know, looking wealthy and beautiful and saying like every once in a while I have this problem. They're the people who have really fallen off the curve of society and, you know, lost their families, lost their homes, lost their jobs, lost their insurance. Mm. Um, and it's, it's a really different group of people. Yeah. Interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Do you see any major changes or breakthroughs coming to the field of psychiatry that someone should be aware of? I mean, I think people are trying to find stuff all the time. Um, I think that one thing that's going to happen is that we are going to be moving more towards procedural psychiatry. So things like more electroconvulsive therapy, more transcranial magnetic stimulation, um, and who knows what else. We just, you know, there haven't been that many breakthrough psychiatric drugs on the market recently. In the 60s and 70s, when antipsychotics really hit the market, it it was a huge change in the way things were done, not just in terms of treating individual patients, but the, the nationwide system in general, because now people with chronic psychotic disorders could actually get better. Um, antidepressants, though they were heralded as being equally amazing when they came out, have they've not quite panned out to be so dramatically awesome. You know, I think there's really a lot of question as to how much benefit they have above placebo, but I think they do help a lot of people. But for the last like 10 or 15 years, there's not really that much that's at the market that's been the total game changer at all. So I think people are going to start looking towards other modalities and that that's what we're going to see next. Yeah. Interesting. You mentioned gun violence and gun advocacy and uh, it sounds like you're very interested in that and your bio shows that you have some membership in some firearm control stuff how do we as a society fix our gun violence issue yes ironically i got involved in that um basically as the voice of somebody saying hey this is not a mental health or a psychiatric issue (laughs) um i got involved after Sandy Hook and more involved after each other mass shooting when people would really turn the discussion towards like, Hey, this is a mental health problem. The mental health system should have, um, should have found this guy should have put a stop to this. The mental health system failed us. And 
you know, being the front lines of that mental health system and having had the police bring into the crisis unit where I work a couple of different guys who had made very similar threats to shoot up their school or a public area. Um, I know how hard it is to really make a, make a, a diagnosis of a mental illness in people that actually just seem really angry and entitled and unempathic. Hmm. And I know how much harder it is to treat those traits in someone. And so it's pretty futile to keep them in a hospital. And that's if the police actually are able to find them and bring them in, which oftentimes they don't. Um, and so my, my first involvement with this was, um, you know, writing some opinion pieces for the Sacramento Bee and also for the New York Times about what it actually looks like on the ground to say the mental health system is responsible for this, like where, where that logic falls apart. And I think a lot of people who don't know exactly what happens in the process of an involuntary mental health detention were like, Oh yeah, I kind of thought this wasn't a viable solution, but now I really see the, you know, the nuts and bolts of why it's not. And so that became my main role in it and really explaining through the existing civil commitment procedures and mental health law, why the mental health system was not going to be a viable option for, you know, stopping mass shootings in this country and how much of the violence here is not due to mass shootings, and how much suicides are not clearly preventable by just, you know, hospitalizing everybody with depression. Um, and so it really brought out that public health epidemiology part of me that had been latent since I wanted to be a, a expert in hemorrhagic fevers when I was in my twenties and didn't know any better. And so I really appreciated like reapplying those same principles to this problem and working with a great team down here at the UC fire and violence prevention center that um, includes, you know, criminologists, epidemiologists, ER docs who are doing great research and teaching about this topic. Yeah. Awesome. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a psychiatrist? Yeah, I think I would. You know, every once in a while, I'm sorry I didn't become an ER doc, but then I remember there were reasons that I didn't become an ER doc and those reasons still stand. And the main one is that I can't really stay up past 10 p.m. (laughs) But I also think that there's something about you know, emergency medicine and I'll, you know, not to, not to pick on their specialty, but this is also true of surgery or OB where you're working in one setting all the time doing a really similar thing, you know, whether it's, you know, delivering babies or doing appendectomies or, you know, covering shifts in the emergency department. And there's not a lot of room to move around or branch out. Whereas in psychiatry, you know, again, I just get that variety where I'm like, oh, I can go do ER style shift work for a while. That's really chaotic and busy. I can, you know, open a psychotherapy practice if I want a couple of days a week. I can, um, I can run an inpatient team. There's so much variety. So whatever setting fits, not just my, you know, personal whims, but also my lifestyle, the needs of my family, my kids, what kind of schedule I can have, I can adjust things. And I really like that. Any last words of wisdom for the pre-med or medical student listening to this, thinking about psychiatry? Yeah. Um, Don't forget that psychiatry can be a very evidence-based medical specialty. And um, it is one that is so necessary. You will always have job security. Your patients will always need you. And so will all of your colleagues. And you will never be bored because we don't know the half of how the brain works yet. And it is always, is always interesting. All right. There you have it. A great conversation with a non-traditional 
student who found her passion for psychiatry, thinking, I'm not going into psychiatry, uh, but eventually making it there and loving it. Hopefully, you learned a lot from our episode today about psychiatry and something maybe that you are now interested in. Go reach out, go find a mentor. Hopefully, we'll help you on this journey. Next week is actually another great conversation with a psychiatrist, someone who actually runs a psychiatry residency program in Arizona. And we talk all about kind of if you're interested in psychiatry, what you should be doing to to match in a program. So hopefully you enjoyed our conversation today. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.